to you and Aloha. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. I mean, what do you have to start with? I mean, I, I guess that was my question. But that was supposed to be funny. Some of you didn't catch that. Okay. Okay. Well, good morning, good afternoon, whatever we call this. It's just before lunch. I know you're probably sitting there saying you would like to eat because you can smell the food, right? I mean, the food smells really, really good. The food smells better to eat than the anticipation of listening to me preach. I know that's true. But um, hopefully I'll have something that's worth listening to. Um, There's a big study that was conducted about young people. Now, this study was conducted a few years ago, but it's regarded as being still relatively valid in its findings from, you know, sociological research and that kind of thing. They called it the National Study of Youth and Religion. And here's what happens with young people generally. Young people generally, they buy into the faith of their parents and others around them who are significant others in their lives. But then they will often express that in ways that take it to its sort of logical conclusions. In other words, the, the adults themselves may hold to a particular set of ideas, but they blend it with their traditions in such a way that it's kind of hard to see. But as I heard Dawson McAllister one time talk about young people, that young people have a way of being able to detect the inconsistencies in the, the, the faith of their adults. And sometimes we'll live out what they see and hear, even if the parents don't realize that they're conveying it. Does that make sense? It can be, it can be that way. And there was this discovery that they made about the tenets of the faith of young people, and they actually gave it a name. Now, the name is going to sound really nerdy, okay, so just be prepared. But in order for me to really, you know, kind of convey what I'm about to talk about, I have to give you the name that they gave the faith the typical faith of youth in their study was called moral therapeutic deism. Now that does sound kind of nerdy, doesn't it? Moral meaning that you do good things, you behave, you, you, you do good things. Therapeutic, that God solves my problems for me. You know, that he's you know, therapeutic in that way. But deism going way, way back to a construct relative to understanding God that I don't believe is accurate, but it's the idea that sort of God created the world and just sort of set it in motion but sort of pulled back from it and is not directly involved in the world. So moral therapeutic theism. And they gave these tenets, these ideas about moral therapeutic theism. They said this was essentially the way of summarizing the faith of the young people that they studied. So here it is. The five tenets of moral therapeutic deism. This is going to be on a test. Alright, so here we go. Number one. God exists and created and orders the world and watches over life on earth. Okay, that's pretty good so far. Number two. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and most world religions. So 
not a whole lot of distinction between Christian behavior and the behavior that is taught by other world religions. Now, God exists, and he watches over the world, but what he expects of us is to be good and nice and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and most world religions. Okay, but then number three. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. The central role of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Well, I mean, you know, in and of itself, there's probably nothing wrong with being happy and feeling good about oneself. But is that the central goal of life? Well, we have some question about that. But again, they're just looking at the way that faith was conveyed. Number four, God is not involved in my life except when I need God to resolve a problem. God is not involved in my life unless I need him to solve a problem. Okay? And then number five, good people go to heaven when they die. So there we go. That's the way they summarize the faith of the thousands of young people across the entire nation, largest study that's ever been conducted on youth called the National Study of Youth and Religion. The N-S-Y-R. So what do you think? I mean, I'm not going to actually ask for any, you know, people to speak up, but you can kind of mutter it under. What do you think? I'm not, I won't even ask for a show of hands, but do you think they got it? Do you think they kind of put their finger on it? You know, most people that I'm looking at, you can shake your head, okay? Do you think they got it? No. Wow, that's pretty cool. I'm glad that you don't actually think that they got it. Now, I will say this. One of the things that they discovered in the study, which is really fascinating, I think, is that young people who have more direct interaction with adults in their churches have a different faith expression than this. Oh, and most of them grew up in smaller churches. Oh, so can you identify with that? You see where I'm coming from there? I mean, you guys are shaking your heads like, yeah. I remember what it was like growing up in my church. I grew up in Mayfield, Kentucky. It's pronounced Mayfield. For those of you who might not be aware, that's just the way they say it over there in Kentucky. If you've ever watched reruns of Andy Griffith, and you watch the reruns of Andy and Barney and Mayberry and that kind of thing. Okay, you know the way Andy and Barney talk, and the way Gomer talked, right? And the way Goober and all those guys talk. Okay, that's the way you normally talk in my hometown of Mayfield, Kentucky. And but I grew up in a church of five or six hundred people. I mean, that's huge. But of course, this was in the 1960s and the mid 1970s. So I mean, the churches were a little bit bigger during that time, but I'll, I'll never forget. I mean, I was up leading singing and reading scripture in front of my church and doing all kinds of things like that when I was like seven, eight, nine years old. I mean, I, I led my first song when I was in camp, and I think, I think I was seven and a half years old. And I remember the song. In vain and high and holy lays my soul, her grateful voice would raise for who can sing the worthy praise of the wonderful love of Jesus. I'm not going to sing it to you. But I remember singing it, and I pitched it way too high. <laughs> I do remember that, because the old song leader had to come up and help me. But my faith was shaped in a different sort of way than this, 
But one of the things they talked about is that faith is richer when it is something that is shared with the adults. And a lot of you experience that because you come from smaller churches to where the distance between the older and the younger is relatively minimal. And you you experience life alongside older adults and you actually see the legitimacy or the illegitimacy of the faith of those who raise you and who surround you and teach you. And so it can be a little different. But when I read that study several years ago, and I've talked with several youth ministers and others who work with youth, and they say, yeah, it's still pretty valid. I still hold out hope that even most young people know that we're called to something better than that. We're called to something deeper and richer than that. Not something that we could call moral therapeutic deism, which basically says that God's up there, he's not really deeply involved unless I have some kind of problem. He's kind of concerned about my problem, but kind of not. But otherwise, we just got to be good and fair and nice. It's got to be a little more than that. Well, there's a text of scripture that I think helps us to underscore the more than that. And that's in 2 Peter chapter 1. So you can go ahead and turn there if you wish. 2 Peter chapter 1. And this is the way that Peter defines spiritual growth. Here's the way he defines it. Verse 3 of chapter 1 of 2 Peter. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. All right, so that's straight out of the shoot. Peter says, if you've ever wanted to grow in spiritual life and godliness, God has given us everything we need for that. Everything. And he's given it to us through his power. But it happens through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption that is in the world caused by evil desires. So let's talk about this for just a moment. Let me lift before you four characteristics of genuine spiritual growth. So here you go. Those of you who are taking notes, it's pretty cool. A lot of you are taking notes. Yeah, all right. Number one, when we're talking about the four characteristics of genuine spiritual growth, I'm going to say number one is energized by the power of God. It is energized by the power of God, which means that if we're growing spiritually, we're doing that by a power that comes outside of us and comes to our aid and maybe even lives and thrives within us. We're not left to ourselves. It is something that actually happens to us by His divine intervention that He's involved in our lives. That we can actually feel, experience, and realize a change that God is bringing about. In my house, there in Nashville, we moved in and the backyard is heavily sloped. And we've had to do some things for erosion control, just making sure the water just doesn't flood down on our, you know, our patio and that kind of thing. And so one of the things that Anna and I did is we stacked rocks 
beautiful mountain creek rocks in various configurations just to make sure that everything stayed, that, that the ground kind of stayed stable and didn't erode over time and that kind of thing. It's a beautiful rock formation. That rock formation cannot grow by itself. It doesn't have the capability of expanding any more than it any more than it would if I were taking a batch of wood and trying to build a deck or something in my backyard. The only way that crop of rocks can grow is if my wife and I get out there and we place them. They do not grow on their own. I mean, you, you've never seen that, right? I mean, you can't plant rocks and expect more rocks to grow. That just it doesn't happen that way. The rocks have to be placed by someone externally. Same way if you build a deck. It, a, a deck doesn't just, you know, you plant a deck DNA somewhere in the dirt and a deck just emerges out of it. It doesn't happen that way. It, 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 it cannot grow organically. Inanimate things like rocks and wood can't expand internally. But there is something different about the way living things grow. Not by imposing something from the outside, but organically, naturally, from the life force that is inside. Flowers grow because they have something organically within them that when you plant that seed and you cultivate, it just grows naturally. Babies are the same way. When babies are born to their parents, the babies have a kind of natural DNA, a kind of, uh, you know, a, a, a more or less kind of a life script physically that is just planted within their being that enables them, if they're fed and they're, and they're loved and they're warmed, they're going to grow. They're going to become an adult human being. That's, that's the organic growth. True spiritual growth, true spiritual growth, comes from the fact that God has given us His power from within. We call Him the Holy Spirit. And the idea is that true spiritual growth is not merely adding character traits or stacking good things into a growing portfolio of character like you would stack rocks or build a deck. Spiritual growth is a powerful work of God in our lives from beginning to end by the spiritual DNA that He gives us in the new birth by the Holy Spirit. So spiritual growth is energized by His power because He gives us His Holy Spirit and we have then the power to overcome habits that we seem unable to break, deep wounds of the soul or pieces of brokenness, life situations that seem insurmountable. We have the capacity to deal with that because of power from within that comes from Him. And so there is a kind of organic growth that occurs in us. But then number two, real spiritual growth is not only energized by the power of God, it is experienced by a deepening, intimate knowledge of God. A deepening, intimate knowledge of God. This is the way he says it, again in the text. His divine power is giving us everything that we need for life and godliness 
through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Now this little word for knowledge is important. I'll get to something about the definition of it later. There's different types of knowledge. You know, there are lots of ways that we know things, right? This is a cell phone. It's actually a real phone. It's not a fruity phone. Some of you have fruity phones. Okay? This is, this is a real phone. It's an Android. And if... if <laughs> some of you are moaning and groaning. Right, if you unlock it, then you have this beautiful screen that appears with apps that really work on a variety of phones, not just apps that work on only one kind of phone. You know? doesn't have all the limits of the free phones. Right? All right. Some of you are sneering at me. I'll just sneer back because I think these are real phones and you've got free phones. But you know what it's like, right? This phone does not have the capacity to say to me, I do not wish to be known. It doesn't have that capacity. It's inanimate. It's a machine, right? In fact, this machine will do more than the original computers that would take up an entire city block. I had a friend who studied computer science in the 1960s, the early 1960s, at the University of Kentucky. And he, he told me that, you know, that the, the computer that they had there at the University of Kentucky at the time would not do one one-hundredth of what this little phone right here will do. It's amazing, right? But the only thing that stands in between this phone and me knowing it is my desire to know it, and I manipulate its technology. Now, it's true that there can be user error or malfunction, but it isn't as if there's some kind of living mechanism inside this phone that can bark back at me and say, I don't want to be known. Because that's the way non-living things are. That's what's kind of scary a little bit. I love the idea of artificial intelligence. You ever heard of ChatGPT? Any of you heard of ChatGPT? I mean, it's, it's a new artificial intelligence that supposedly is going to, uh, that does give us the capacity to create script and that kind of thing that's just amazing. I mean, it draws off all the knowledge of the internet and you give it a few parameters and it can do all kinds of things. But one of the things that it doesn't have is a conscience. It doesn't have a soul. It doesn't have that, right? That's the way inanimate things are. But animate things are different. They can only be known, and you can only know them, and they know you, if there's a reciprocity, a choice for both of them to know each other. How many of you have a dog? Okay. All right. When you walk into your home after you have been gone, the inside dogs, let's just think about inside dogs here for just a moment. When you walk into your home after you've been gone for a while, how does your dog behave? He starts barking and, you know, wagging his tail and, you know, just jumping up on you and that kind of thing. Because dogs just love to be known, right? They just, they just have this innate desire to relate to their masters and those who feed them and so on. It's just, they just are that way. They get, Kind of, you know, they get real excited when you're around and they, they, they actually grieve and whimper and cry when you're gone. You know, and they're, and they're looking out the window and they're seeing you walking away and you're getting in the car, whatever, you're not taking them. They know it. Now, they may get a little mischievous once you're gone, okay, but they're still, 
this idea that when they see you, that the dogs want to relate to you. How many of you have a cat? <laughs> All right. Cats are very different, right? Cats don't reciprocate in that way. They don't particularly want to be known. Except when they're hungry or something of that nature. We have, we have a domesticated cat. Her name is Piper. And, <laughs> sorry, okay, there's somebody here named Piper. Ours is named after the little town where we lived when we, when we got her, Piperton, and so we called her Piper. We actually had a cat named Memphis one time because we got her when we were in Memphis and that kind of thing. But anyway, her name is Piper. Sorry about this. I'm not calling you a cat or an animal or anything like that. Okay. But Piper is so odd. I mean, she is so weird. <laughs> you know, she's an outside cat. She stays in the garage. And, then, you know, when we leave the house during the day, we leave the garage just open enough so she can get in and out and that kind of thing. But not big enough for the bobcats to come in. You know how that all is. And uh, she's pretty smart, you know. I mean, she, she has the backyard where she's got all kinds of birds that she can prey upon and mice and that kind of thing. You know how cats are. They'll eat about half of it and you share it with you. They'll leave it right there just outside the door so you can have some of it too. And But Piper has this thing. You can't just call Piper to you. And she just walks away. Just walks away. Then when you really don't want anything to do with her at all, she gets in her little stance outside the door like she's ready for attention. So I open the door and I let her in thinking that she wants something. And as soon as she gets in, she wants to go back out again. And she's just got her own mind as to what she wants. You see, the beautiful thing about God is this. God wants to be known. He wants to be known. But not only that, he doesn't simply want us to know things about him. He wants us to know him personally. It's reciprocal. You can count on it that any desire you have to know God is matched exponentially more with his desire to know you. And that's one of the things this text says. This word knowledge... It's a little different word. There are two different words in the, in the original text that describe knowledge. One is gnosis, and the other is epignosis. Okay? I didn't pronounce that completely correctly, but it's the idea. Gnosis is just, you know, one way of defining that is to say just general knowledge about things. Okay? But epignosis is different. It's intimate knowledge based upon experience. Let me illustrate it this way. Think about a famous person you have always wanted to know. That you just love to know them. Okay, you got that person in your head? Okay. There's a famous person you really like to get to know. All right. Let's see. I think I would choose the scholar N.T. Wright over in, you know, um, England. I know some of you are thinking, who in the world is that guy? He's a, he's a big nationally, internationally recognized Bible scholar, and he writes a lot of books on theology and that kind of thing, and I don't know him. He doesn't know me from Adam, 
So, let's say that I had arranged a visit with Tom Wright, with N.T. Wright. And he accepts the visit and says, sure, I'll, I'll, yeah, let's let's go ahead. I'd, I'd love to see you sometime. So I show up over there in England and I go to his place and I walk through the door and um, I, I have to go through his assistant. And I, I, I wait for a while to be able to get through the door. And, and while I'm doing it, I'm sort of rehearsing in my mind everything, all, all his books that I've read, everything that I know about him from his bio, where he's been, where he has spoken, where he went to school, all the data that you can get about him based upon what he's written and what's been written about him. Now, that's, that's gnosis, by the way. That's gnosis. That's, that's one kind of knowledge. The kind of things that I can know from, about what he's written, what's been written about him, his bio, that kind of thing. And I'm just waiting to go in and sit down and talk with him about significant theological topics and get, and get to know him, hopefully that we can develop a friendship. And so I walk through the door, introduced by his assistant, saying, this is Mr. Gupton, who has come all the way from Nashville, Tennessee, and wanted to meet you. And, and N.T. Wright looks at me and says, Hello? Nice to meet you. Glad to see you visiting here. Had a good visit so far? Sure. Yeah, it's been, been great. Well, that's really good. That's really great. Uh, well, uh, I'm, I'm so glad that you dropped by. It's uh, nice to see someone from the States occasionally come through here. And I uh, hope you have a great visit while you're here. Have a good day. That would be no further than Gnosis, right? That would be it. That, that's it. That's all I would have of him. But let's say that I go in and I sit down with N.T. Wright, and he says, Carlos, is that, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes, that, it, it is correct. It's Carlos, not Carlos. Yes, right. Spelled with a U. How is it spelled with a U? It's my dad's name. Oh, your dad. Okay. So you're named after your father. Yeah, yeah. Named after, well, that's wonderful. Uh, listen, you know, Carlos, we've never met before, but, you know, I, I asked a few people who are mutual acquaintances of ours, and they just speak so highly of you, and uh, thank you so much for dropping by, and, oh, oh but, but Dr. Wright, you don't realize, man, I just, you know, I've read everything you've written, and just, I have so much appreciation for the work you're doing, he said, that's wonderful, Carlos, he said, I have appreciation for what you do as well, that, that work you're doing with the students over there at Lipscomb, that's so wonderful, have a seat, let's sit down and have tea and crumpets, or whatever they do over there in England, okay. And we sit down and we talk, and he gets to know me. He asks about my, my upbringing. He asks about my faith heritage. I get to know a little bit about his. We exchange stories about how we grew up, because he's older than I am, but not a whole lot older than I am. And so we would be able to have some of those stories, and we exchange them. And he says to me, Carlos, he says, you know, we don't know each other real well yet, but I, I can just get this sense that it would be great if you could join me on a project that I'm in. I mean, it's a, it's a long project, but I can think of something real specific that you could do to help me in getting that project done. Now, it would require us getting together periodically and sort of making sure that we're on the same page with everything. But would you be willing to do that several-year project? And, you know, I, you know, in time, you and I will, will really come to understand the way each of us ticks and the way our minds work and that kind of thing. But I really, really think if we did that, it would be great. That would be epignosis. Are you following me there? That would be a deep, intimate knowledge. When this text says, 
that He has granted us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness? It's that kind of knowledge. He wants us to have that kind of growing, intimate knowledge of Him. He welcomes us into that. And there's, there's no end to the extent that He wants to share Himself. He shares Himself generously so that we can know Him intimately. This is the way one writer expresses it. Listen to the way J.I. Packer describes this desire that God has to know us and how that should be met by our desire to know Him. This is the way he says it. There is unspeakable comfort in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my own good. There is tremendous relief in knowing that His love to me is utterly realistic based at every point on his prior knowledge of the worst about me. Have you ever thought about that? That God's desire to know you is based upon his deep and intimate knowledge of you already with not only the best about you but the worst about you. He knows all of that. No discovery can disillusion him about me, as Packer continues, in the way that I'm so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. There is certainly great cause for humility in the thought that he sees all the twisted things about me that my fellow human beings do not see, and I'm glad, and that he sees more corruption in me than that which I see in myself, which in all good conscience is enough. There, there is, however, a great incentive to worship and love God in the thought that for some unfathomable reason, He wants to be my friend and has given His Son to die in order to realize this purpose. And you think about that. Great comfort in knowing that God wants to know us and He wants us to know Him in that way. But then, a third thing about genuine spiritual growth. Not only is it energized by the power of God and experienced as an ever-deeping, intimate relationship with God, it is also it evolves into our sharing the nature of God. It evolves into our sharing His very nature. Look at the way Peter expresses it when he says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through these you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption that is in the world because of evil desires. Do you make any New Year's resolutions, any of you? Okay, all right. Several of you did. I made a few. I make fewer of them as I get older because 
I've experienced over time, but I have difficulty keeping a significant group of them. You know, I, I can get a little overambitious sometimes in my younger life about what I thought I might be able to accomplish with my New Year's resolution, so I, I make fewer of them. Sometimes New Year's resolutions can have this effect on us, that we think we sometimes mistake spiritual growth even for me just becoming the best version of myself. Have you heard that language before, that you need to do everything you can to become the best version of yourself? And there's nothing wrong with that, because you do have some unique qualities and capabilities. You, you do have a kind of, you know, makeup that is just you, that no one else has, while each of us probably has someone else in the world who is the closest visible equivalent of who we are, the likelihood is that if we were to meet that person, even though there would be a lot of things that would be alike, there would be many, many things that would be different. Any of you have an identical twin? Okay, you kind of know what that's like. You, you, you've seen identical twins before, but still, even with their complete DNA match in that respect, there's some difference between them. And so, yes, it is true that there is a, a best version of yourself that you can be. But what spiritual growth is, is not my becoming the best version of myself that I can. Truly, spiritual growth is my becoming more and more like God himself in the person of Jesus. We become partakers in the divine nature. We grow into becoming increasingly like him. We're God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus for love and good works which God prepared in advance for us to do, as Paul says over in Ephesians chapter 2. When we're invited to spiritual growth, we are invited to a lifelong journey of increasingly becoming more like God in the person of Jesus Christ. And God energizes that and invites us to participate in it over the long haul. And I think there is great solace and comfort in knowing that God wants to know us in that way. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, thank you for your desire to know us. May we match that desire with a mutual interest in wanting to know you. And may we give you consistent and regular ways of you knowing how much we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Reason I cut it short is because I see the clock back there, and I know it's noon.